Hello, I'm Con. And I'm Stav. And, and we're we Eddie, Eddie Nucky. You're listening to Radio Karam. You are listening to Ron Pratt Method, where myself and a unique guest discuss topics that I find interesting and that you might find relevant to your life. On today's episode, we have Laura Fettis. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm very happy to have you here. So, you do a lot of things, but you're a <laughs> psychological educator and mindfulness practitioner. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so really big in the education space. So in terms of my background, being an educator for uh, almost probably like 15 years now or something like that. But yeah, started off my career in schools uh, and I was teaching VC psychology at that time. So I've always been absolutely obsessed with psychology and moved into that space uh, for some period of time. And then after that, it was really time for something new. So started working with frontline workers. So, you know, think um, police, nurses, you know, those sorts of um, industries. So, yeah, learning a lot in that space. I've been working that space for about four years now. And then, yeah, in my spare time, um, particularly during one of the lockdowns, I wanted to learn something new. So I did my yoga instructors course. So I do, you know, a class or two a week with that. And then also just became really interested in mindfulness and, in particular, I'm not so much of a meditator, but there's a lot of emerging research in that area of mindfulness. So I'm very fascinated with that and creating activities in that more unique space of mindfulness. Yeah, I love that because so many people, meditation just simply doesn't work for them. Mm. And I can't remember the name of the guy, but someone was talking about how the actual roots of mindfulness wasn't in the meditation itself. It was a practice, but it's more of a philosophy in the sense that it's the mindset that you apply and assessing thoughts and behaviours and things that you can use in everyday life. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So you can be mindful when you're doing pretty much anything. But one of the interesting things that we see, especially in the frontline space, um, is to do with trauma. So often people that have experienced trauma find things like meditation very triggering Mm. um, because they might be sitting with their thoughts and feelings, which is a bit too much for them. Even things with that are involved with meditating, for example, closing your eyes, you know, it's a very, really simple thing that we we don't necessarily think about, but that can be really triggering, triggering for someone who's had trauma. Um, It can bring back, you know, memories and, and things like that. So I think that's something not many people tend to know about mm. meditation and mindfulness that, you know, there's there's a trauma-informed space that's developing there in terms of alternative activities and giving people options. And yeah, that's like amazing. That. It's because it's, it might not be the right technique, but how many people do you think as frontline workers have been exposed to some form of trauma in the line of work or even in their history? Oh, huge. Firstly, in terms of, um, you know, if we talk about the policing context as an example, there's a high percentage of people in that recruit space that are drawn to the role because of their past trauma and that inspires them in one way or another. So for some people, they might have had a trauma occur in their lives Mm. and police were there to support them and that inspired them to then pass on that good experience. And then you also have the opposite experience, actually. You have people that have experienced trauma and feel potentially let down by policing staff and they want to create the change. So initially the original cohort already starts out with a bit of a higher uh, level of trauma in terms of their previous exposure but certainly I mean they're being exposed all the time whether it's 
you know, on the job, a specific thing they're experiencing. But in addition to that, they also, on top of that, experience vicarious trauma. So, for example, they might be reading reports Mm. about the incident that they've already experienced and all these little things that we don't necessarily think about increase your exposure. So reading reports, hearing victim impact statements, you know, the things that haven't happened to you, but your body can respond to it, especially if it's a high level of exposure over time. Yeah. I never thought about the vicarious impacts of trauma and it's common to a lot of industries. Now that I think about it, you know, people working in particularly where trauma is involved, whether people in a residential facility working with young people that have experienced trauma or homelessness and anything like that, just being exposed to those stories that's a lot to process on a daily basis, particularly if you've got your own experience. Yeah, 100%. So, um, yeah, with vicarious trauma, sometimes what people can notice is that they might be hearing a story. Uh, so often vicarious trauma is we it's through hearing people's stories. Yeah. So someone might be sharing a story with you and your brain and body can be responding to, to that story. So it might be an increase in heart rate. Um, You know, you might have images come to mind. You know, we can start to react in a very similar way to how we would if it was happening to us personally. So it's quite interesting. And the space over, let's say, a 20, 30-year period, the old school mentality, let's say, um, you know, it could be anything, but um, like uh, in policing, for example, would be desensitize yourself as much as possible. That was the old school thing. Yeah. So people would go out and see his, you know, images and hear about stories and expose themselves to things that they didn't have to actually experience. And now it's transitioned to, you know, now we know that that's adding vicarious trauma yeah. <laughs> by hearing all these extra stories and doing all these extra things that aren't necessary for your job. So now it's transitioned to actually where possible considering is this something that I have to hear? Is it important for my role? And if it's not, I'm not going to look at it. So Really? It, yeah. So an example is um, I don't even remember who it was that I was speaking to. I think it was someone that was working as a security guard. Mm. But something had happened, a, a member of the public had fallen down the stairs and everyone was like, look at the security footage, like it's it's crazy. And he was like, do I have to see it? For my job, is there anything, any report that I have to do? No? Okay, no, I'm not going to watch it. So it's a pretty big transition. Wow. Was he instructed to do that? Did he learn that from somewhere or is it just his own he decision? He actually um, came to that, I think he'd been in security for a while, but that was his personal thing. So he yeah. discovered that on his own, that he was actually being escalated by seeing all these additional things that he didn't have to experience. And the space is quite new. So in terms of education in that space you know it's probably the past five years it's slowly eking its way in that's Um, exciting because so many people would have been suffering in silence for such a long time and Mm. particularly you know policing and many frontline workers it is often a male dominated industry there's lots of women in the service as well Mm. but they don't express or dump these emotions they don't usually go and seek support from anywhere and they're just constantly like go and expose like straight into it that's a lot of stuff to carry it is, it is. And we also find in a lot of these industries, they uh, often value independence and that can be sometimes a barrier for help seeking. Mm. So they're, they're very used to supporting others. 
that's why they're drawn to the role, right? So they're, they're used to supporting others. They want to support people in the community. Often in their family and friendship groups, they're also the rock as well. Mm. <laughs> they're the rock for everyone else. So it can be very difficult for them to rely on other people. The transition there is very uncomfortable for people. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely definitely a shift for them. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to go through. And I guess looking at the idea that if they're not okay, everyone and everything that depends on them will suffer. The people in their yes. job, the people that are depending them on them outside of the work as well. Mm. It's a lot of pressure for them to be that stable rock and they need to have adequate so- support and solutions and strategies they can implement in real time, which mm. is the stuff that you're leaning towards, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting space to be in and it's an emerging space. It's Some of the roles are surprisingly new yeah. <laughs> in the mental health education training space. Like, you know, from some of the roles I was looking at, you know, started in 2017, which, you know, you think about the history of these organisations, it's it's very, in, you know, it's pretty much in its infancy when you think about the, de- you know, the hundreds of years that these <laughs> careers have kind of been around. So. What do you think led to the shift? Because as you said, these institutions and organisations have been around for a very long time and they've had a certain culture in all sorts of demographics. What do you think has got to this point in the last six years or so where people are like, you know what, something needs to change? What was that? You know, why is the cup overflowing? Why have we got to this point where people are actually taking a look at it? Mm. I think there is a lot more data gathered these days around people going on work cover, um, research into what people are experiencing on or off the job or after the job. And I I think as well it's also, this is my opinion, but I I think also just the understanding of mental health in general over the last decade or so as a society, Mm. (laughs) there's been a really big shift towards focusing on mental health. And then as that shift has happened, people have sort of been like, wait a minute, police officers and nurses and firefighters are they getting training on this so I think yeah I think with that societal shift it's kind of naturally integrated into those areas as well Well, it's good that everyone's starting to take a look at it is everyone accepting it or do you think some people still sit in their ways with the culture because I notice in industries that I've worked in trying to do the same shift there are many people that say you know I didn't need it's like the people that you get that say they were beaten as a kid and they turned out fine and clearly they're not and they're just (laughs) holding on to these old school ways and not wanting the change to happen yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of factors involved. Sometimes when I run sessions, there are people that are very adamant that, oh, you know, I won't be affected on the job. And I, I can't quite discern if that is an element of denial. Sometimes this is before they go on the job, right? So they actually might not be aware. Sometimes we can have a perception of what we think something will be like and the reality is very different. So sometimes I'm not sure if there's a little bit of a denial there. Other times I don't know if they're trying to put on a bit of a brave face of like, oh, no, that that won't impact me Um, in front of other people. Maybe maybe behind closed doors they're different. Um, You know, that may be the case. But I find with a lot of the younger people coming through they're a lot more receptive to mental health taking care of yourself um acknowledging or expressing how they're feeling um obviously you have individual differences some people are more or less comfortable uh, gender differences as well yeah um as well as there's often a, di- a difference regionally so in country areas there's there can be a lot more cynicism they're dealing with a lot 
a lot with less resources, they can feel less supported. And so sometimes when you're working with those groups, there's a resistance because sometimes I think there's an anger about, you know, the delay with all this mental health training stuff, you know, feeling like they've been coping with it for so long. And then when it finally arrives, they're not welcoming it with open arms because, you know, there can be an element of anger or frustration and that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. I've seen that in industries that I've worked in as well where people thought, you know, what's the point of this? We just want to get on with the job. Mm. But I think it's essentially like planning for a fire escape or a fire drill. You don't wait till the fire is there before you mm. do it. You want to have strategies in place at the start. So when you are faced with a situation where you do need these things, you know what to do and you've mm. practiced them and you are prepared. You know, it, when times are good even, instead of just yes. waiting for shit to hit the fan before you decide to do something about it. Yeah, the other analogy that I really love is thinking about a car and getting a car serviced. So rather than waiting for your car to blow up yeah. <laughs> later down the track, we get the car serviced regularly to mitigate any of those potential issues. So I, yeah. I, yeah, there's a few interesting analogies like that. But yeah, yeah that's one that I like that one. Me. Yeah. That's good. You mentioned about frontline workers. I completely agree how they have potentially had some experience, whether good or bad, where they've needed support in some way and they want to help other people that have had similar experiences to them. Do you feel that lived experience is a benefit going into that industry because they can relate to the people that they're helping as long as they have tools to be able to manage their state? Yeah, I think it can definitely be a benefit to really have that empathy, understanding and insight. Uh, Sometimes they can anticipate things in that are going to happen because they've, you know, they've experienced it before. Um, I guess like all situations, there's there's always like the pros and the cons. So the cons are that sometimes we can be over, overly connected on a personal level to a particular job, mm. for example, or that can re-trigger us. But, yeah, I think that, I mean, essentially when you think about it, we actually all have our own triggers, even if you don't consider yourself being someone that's, been affected by trauma you know even small scale things we can personally connect with particular jobs Mm -hmm. you know really common things for people are jobs that involve children a a lot of people you know they haven't necessarily had a trauma but they have children or even if they don't have children maybe they have nieces and nephews for me I was a teacher for many years so that is a connection um so sometimes jobs involving these sorts of things or or elderly or vulnerable groups is a thing that can really trigger people because we all know people that are vulnerable in our lives Mm. um yeah so I, I think that the it can definitely be a benefit and again it's just like all of us for our triggers, being aware of what our triggers are, being able to communicate them potentially on on the job. So saying, oh, you know, these particular jobs really impact me. I might need you to check in. If possible, I might need you to take over at certain points. You know, you often work in a team. Um, and having the coping strategies afterwards as well. Yeah. So a high level of self-awareness is definitely See, that's important. no easy task. Self-awareness no. is an ongoing thing and I feel like yeah. you're never done. And it's relevant to absolutely anyone that could be listening, not just frontline workers. Mm. What are some tips that you can recommend for people cultivating awareness? Because there's many people out there go, that's triggering to me, but they're not putting anything in place to actually be able to maybe – put a little bit of a time lapse between their reaction or actually doing any work surrounding it. They just, yes. yeah. It's really difficult. I think sometimes people are completely unaware of how things are affecting them. So I, I think the first stage of that is really 
tuning into the body, mm. often the body will send a signal that something's not quite right. Yeah. <laughs> and we've all been in situations, um, even if it's uh, a relationship or a career or a situation that doesn't quite um, mesh with our values or there's some sort of conflict and often we'll feel something in the body. So mm. we'll feel tension, tightness, our heart rate will increase. So I think the first thing is really tuning into the body to see what is it telling you. Your body is always giving you some form of information. It's only a piece, one piece of the puzzle, right? So you get the information from the body and then you have to put the other pieces in to figure out what is my body actually trying to tell me. Yeah. Um, so we can we can tune into the body in this way to, to as a starting point. Yep. Uh, from there you know, there's the more cognitive parts of it. So the, the thought processes of trying to check in and saying, oh, it could be even on, on a minor point of view. Someone said something to me and now I'm feeling my heart rate increase and I feel a tension in my stomach. What is that? Asking yourself the question, what what is happening there? Um, have they said something to offend me? If I'm offended, why am I offended? Oh, I'm actually insecure about my level of intelligence so when someone says that oh you know that's dumb it might just be a little word to them but if I've got a trigger there of feeling like I'm a dumb person then I'll be elevated or escalated by that so really diving in and sometimes that's something we can do on our own journaling other times we might need other people to help us yeah whether that's a professional whether it's a friend a family member uh, there are lots of ways that we can explore it but yeah often finding people that can ask us the right questions to kind of get there and then and then after identifying what the thing is, thinking, you know, how do you want to deal with it? Is that is that person someone that constantly triggers you and is maybe not very nice to you? Then we might choose to put a boundary and not connect with that person. Or is that person someone that has said something unwittingly and unaware and not really knowing that that's a trigger? Do we communicate, hey, I'm actually really sensitive about this issue, so, you know, I'd, you know, I'd prefer if you didn't make this comment or that comment or I just want to make you aware that that's how I feel about it. I mean, often people, if they if they value you, they'll be like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, I didn't know." Um, yeah, so there are there are different ways that we can do. Or, or you know, we can say, "Oh, this isn't a trigger that comes up with me often. I'm going to cop it on the chin when it comes up. It yeah. doesn't bother me enough to to do anything about it." So there's lots of ways that we could deal with it. But. Great strategies. Do you think some of it could be situational? So, for example. You're more likely to be triggered if you've got a lot of stresses going on in your life at the time or you're run down and there's a uncertainty that you're facing and then things that normally wouldn't affect you are coming up. Yes. So um, thinking about your your the resources that you have at the time. So when you're in a really happy, healthy balanced place you have a high level of resources to deal with whatever comes your way um so you know you get blocked in traffic you know you're in a happy healthy balanced frame of mind we can deal with it and be flexible and adaptable uh, but yes when we've got a lot of things going on in our life our resources and capacity to deal with it is lowered <laughs> so we find that we'll often get more escalated so getting the, those five red lights on the way to work <laughs> that particular day, uh, we don't have the resources to cope with it. Yeah. So we're, you know, reacting. Um, yeah, so definitely situational, depending on what's happening in your life at the time, um, can can dictate how you're going to respond. And also there's obviously personality differences as well. Mm. So some people might find themselves 
you know, stressed by minor things often. They might have an overly reactive nervous system and some mm. people do and, you know, we might have other ways in which we manage that, whether that's through strategies, medication, whatever is, you know, it's up to that individual. Um, but, yes, that, that definitely can, can shift and we can notice that shift sometimes and we're yeah. like, oh, okay, that small thing is bothering me today, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how depending on your state and there could be a number of factors that are impacting that whether it's the outside stresses or you just run down and things are going on and then things can trigger you that normally wouldn't trigger you. Your resilience is completely just not there. It's non-existent. How important do you think self-care is for people in situations like this that are in highly stressful situations that are serving the public, serving others, you know, even people with families and responsibilities? They, you know, how important is it for them to look after themselves? Oh, yeah, so important. Um, in, in some ways it's number one yeah. <laughs> or it should be number one obviously within reason there are times where you know if you need to relax but your child needs food then obviously we're going to prioritize the you know those sort of needs but there are other times where we prioritize things above ourselves that really don't uh, aren't necessary but we think they are so sometimes we can maybe ask ourselves do I need to do all the dishes that are in the sink do I really need to or can I just give myself some grace here and actually take some time to relax because I really need it today yeah so I think really asking yourself um how urgent (laughs) is the the thing that I'm prioritizing above myself and and sometimes we can't always get ourselves to number one if you think you've got a priority list and let's say for that day you've got 20 things that you need to do every day you've got 20 things that are on your priority list um if you're number 20 every day you're never going to get around to it yeah and so so you might not be able to get yourself to number one every day but i always challenge myself to say okay how far can i move myself up up the list can i can i bump myself up to number seven on the priority list number three number two number one i sort of challenge myself to be like how far can i get myself up the ranks yeah. and you know for a for, for a busy working mum maybe number five is the absolute best that she can do on you know a particular day and it will vary so this can vary day to day i think so yeah that's a really yeah. good solution because i know some people that treat self-care like a full-time job they have to do you know 40 minutes of meditation a day they have to do some yoga they have to do their cold shower they have to do their journaling and there's only so many hours in the day and then they get a sick kid or you know like a deadline with work and things and then it becomes this is way too hard i'm not going to do it i'll start back monday and because mm. monday is the magic day and people just <laughs> don't do it uh, what is the minimum effective dose in your opinion because we're going to get into some strategies and things that you teach people and mm. we're going to explore your book at some point as well What's the minimum effective dose for people just to have a little bit of time for them? I think it's a really hard question because it's also very dependent on someone's lifestyle and for them. I mean, I know <laughs> I used to work with someone who he only needed four hours of sleep every single night and really? he was a morning person as well. So I would arrive at work in the morning and he would be in the best mood and I was I was confused about how someone can live their life like this. But so I guess that speaks to individual differences as yeah, well, Yeah, there's right? always for, outliers, yeah. For me, I need eight hours sleep. For him, he needs four. Yeah. So there can be an individual difference there in terms of self-care as well, yeah. how much people need. Some people are very good at, um, you know, can feel very balanced with very little and other people will need an hour every day or two hours and it's non-negotiable. Mm. 
So I think to a degree listening to your body there as well, your body will tell you <laughs> if there's something that you you need. Um, for me, I mean, I always try and carve out, you know, specific time, um, whether it's – and, it can, again, it can change on the, depending on the day. But I think it's more with the time that you have, um, again, trying to bump yourself up the priority list and also where you can trying to actually enjoy the things that you have to do can be another good strategy. Yeah, okay. So if you need to walk to Coles to do your grocery shop, can I actually enjoy that walk? Is the sun out? Are the birds cheeping? You know, can I enjoy that experience and use that 10 minutes to get to Coles as some me time yeah. can be a good strategy for people who feel like they don't have time. Wow. Um, I love yeah. that. So connecting and using mindfulness while just going on your day-to-day commute, going from A to B. Yeah. So people that do quite well in terms of their well-being, they're actually, it's fascinating. Some people are very, very creative mm. in terms of how they weave and integrate these things into their lives. You know, I've heard of, um, for example, a busy working mum. She has to spend time with her kids. She also has to exercise. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to take the kids to the playground. I'm going to run around. We're going to play hide and seek. When she plays hide and seek and counts to 10, she does 10 burpees. You know, just integrating that in yeah. is a very clever thing that people that manage their mental health well tend to be able to do. It's a, it's a great analogy because so many people think it's all or nothing in this sort of context. Mm. And I talk to people, whether it be fitness and they say, you know, I don't have time to get to the gym and then, or they might want to explore going to the gym, but it's taking them further away from their family and they need to be spending more time struggling in their relationships. Mm. You know, as, as you mentioned, being able to play with your kids and still being active and pump out some burpees or push-ups and things, go for walks with friends instead of going to the pub. There's so many things that you can do to mm. integrate wellbeing protocols and exercise protocols, general health benefits into your life, like connecting the dots with connection and relationships and all these things at once. But I don't think people are very creative when it comes to it. Clearly some people are, like you're mentioning. But Yeah, yeah, you hear all sorts of um, interesting things. Um, I've heard of, um, in terms of creating accountability, I was um, listening to someone talking about how um, she wanted to go for a walk every morning and walk the dog. And so to create accountability in the morning instead of having her alarm go off, she recorded her voice talking to her dog, being like, hey, Rex, ready for a walk? Ready for a walk? And so that would go off in the morning and then the dog hears that, thinking that, oh, she's talking to me, scratching on the door. She's created accountability. So now she feels like she has to go for a walk. (laughs) She's got the dog holding her accountable. Brings the lead in and stuff like I can imagine. That's incredible. Very clever. Um, Another one that I really liked that I heard recently is, Um, switch off strategies particularly for frontline workers but one man was talking about how him and his partner would have a debrief after work but they also wanted to have switch off time so what they did is when he was driving home from work they would talk on the phone I think it was like half an hour so that half an hour as he's driving that's their time to debrief they talk about all the crap from work that you know vent 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 and then when he pulls up in the driveway and walks through the door, they don't talk about it. Yeah. So that's like a dedicated boundary around this is the time that we talk about it. Then we switch off and we don't talk about it. And that's like a, you know, creating very definitive spaces and times for things that can be effective as well. So yeah, some people are quite creative. But. That's a, it's great. It's, 
I often talk to people about self-care and, and anything really. You need to schedule it in all you time, as mm. you mentioned about being higher up on the priority list. Scheduling it in and treating it as if it was a specialist appointment, even if it's going to the gym or something like that. This is the time that I do it and I have to get it done because otherwise I'm too busy. I'll wait till the next milestone's met or I'll wait till mm. things settle down and you know, in a couple of weeks. It just never happens because it's not a priority, as you mentioned, or it's too far down the list. Something like that to have that debriefing on a regular occurrence where, you know, they've got connection in a, in a basic commute, but they're mm. sharing as well. That's a really good partner skill. Yeah, so the, the integration is quite interesting. Um, the other thing that's quite interesting to, to look up, it's called Five Ways to Wellbeing, and it's yeah. essentially like a coping strategies toolkit. But it's got five different things you can do. So if I can remember correctly, it's, you know, connecting with others, being active, keep learning, be aware, which is essentially mindfulness and helping others. Yeah. Right? So talk about with your strategies toolkit, having things in each of these five areas. But again, people that are creative will try and use one space to knock off as many of those five things as possible. So again, if we think about the the busy mum who's carting kids around to go to a dance class, okay, so she's she's watching her kids. So she's sort of connecting, spending time with her kids. Maybe she's also taking the effort to learn something new. So actually learn about ballet or whatever it is. So she's ticking off the learning. Um, and then what was the other one? Yeah, being aware. So listening to the music, uh, you know, being really mindful. So trying to tick off as many of those five things in, you know, a one-hour activity or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, uh, I think they're probably neuro-spicy people that are figuring this out. <laughs> yeah. If you know how to connect yeah. all the dots, uh, yes. definitely the outliers that are a bit of lateral thinking. 100%. I know when I was first experienced mindfulness, that would have been, wow, how long ago? Showing my age here. It would have been about 13 years, actually 15 years ago. 15 years ago mm-hmm. I experienced mindfulness when I did 10 days in silence in a Buddhist temple. And one of the things was we had to wash our dishes. And up until that point, I very rarely washed dishes. I always had access to a dishwasher. You know, maybe a bit when I was a kid, unstacking the dishwasher, et cetera. But we had to be mindful in the practice pretty much the whole day because it was silence. And no matter what we did, it was always being mindful, whether it was eating our food. So everyone was eating as slow as hell. So then like lifting, moving, placing, chewing, mm. swallowing and everything through the process. And then washing. So you'd be getting the dish and you'd be using your hand and you'd feel the water and then you place the dish and you'd be like lifting, moving, you know, cleaning and everything else going through this process mm. and bringing awareness to it. And I find now that when I have to do the dishes, that comes back. And I'm not very quick at getting it done, but it is a therapeutic thing for me to do. It just Mm. takes me to that moment just to check in while I'm doing it. If I'm in a rush, it's different. There's no mindfulness. But if (laughs) if I have the time and it just needs to be done, I just do it as a leisurely thing. Yes. I'm actually a big one for mindful dishes as well. So I I really, um, yeah, enjoy, you know, there's a few sensory things involved as well. So you've got the water. So, you know, putting the water at a temperature that feels really nice, looking at the bubbles, you know, the process of watching a dish go from dirty to clean. You know, you can kind of try to find the joy in these little things. And I always think such a big part of life is finding joy in the mundane because that's the majority of what life is. It's great to look forward to the holidays and these sorts of things, but most of life is these daily routines. So if we can make that enjoyable and mindful 
then, you know, we're getting something done that's productive that we need to do, but we're also taking care of ourselves. And It's a really interesting addition because I've never considered admiring the fact that you've made something from dirty to clean. And I'm big mm. on celebrating wins and moving forward, yeah. but that is a small win. I'm going to appreciate that next time. <laughs> yeah. It might make me more prone to cleaning because I'm not the best when it comes to that. So <laughs> I'm hoping that it'll be an inspirational thing that I could – I picture men that have mowed the lawn and they sit back and they stare at it like it's uh, – <laughs> Yeah, happy to inspire, inspire people to clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting skill. We just have to translate it to children so we can uh, get them yeah. to do it as well and start um, yeah. early. I'm not as good with keeping my room clean. There's a, yeah? Everyone has their thing, right? But, yeah, yeah there's always – and my car, my car's terrible. Yeah, well, I'm so glad because also mine is car. <laughs> mine's terrible as well. It's uh, it's good. I think it's a good quality to have. Clearly, uh, very uh, aware people have messy <laughs> rooms and cars. <laughs> yeah. I can say. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you. You're talking about the nervous system, and this comes up a lot. Something that I'm very passionate about. A lot of people walking around with heightened arousal states. I've looked at somatic therapy, obviously mindfulness is a place, but you mentioned that meditation can be triggering in the sense, maybe being aware of unpleasant sensations in the body mm. and it, you know, that can become even more heightened instead of calming it down. Mm. What solutions would you suggest for someone that you know is in that area, that they have experienced trauma and maybe just bringing awareness to unpleasant sensations and thoughts is actually leading to more negative experiences? Yeah, so one sort of um, trend that we see, and this is something that I talk about in the book that I've just written, but you can think there's lots of ways to think about mindfulness and to categorize mindfulness, but one way of thinking about it that can be helpful to people is the internal versus the external. Mm. So the internal often is things like meditation, sometimes breath work as well makes people go inward. It just depends on the individual. But often internal is things like sitting with your thoughts, emotions, urges. So really having to sit with if you're stressed and you want to eat that block of chocolate or, you know, have a drink or smoke or whatever it is, sometimes sitting with these kind of internal things or sometimes physical sensations that naturally arise within the body. These are all examples of internal mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So often meditation forces us to sit with these internal experiences and that's sometimes what can be triggering for people with trauma. It's too much. It will escalate them. So instead for those people it can be more beneficial to focus on external forms of mindfulness, things in your environment. So often anything sensory from your environment, whether it's focusing on colours, shapes, sounds, smells, any of that grounding sort of thing can be useful to people. Um, Again, there'll be individual differences in terms of what is less or more beneficial. Listening to music is a great one for people. It really interacts with the nervous system quite well. So if Mm. you think about when you're heightened, you can often find music that will calm you or calm the nervous system. And Mm. we also have the opposite as well. When we're feeling in a lowered state, we can get music that energizes us. Mm. So music is a great one that, you know, a lot of people report is quite beneficial in terms of altering their state and again is an external one so a lot of people that struggle with the internal find that useful other things also physical activity for a lot of people so for for a lot of people that struggle to sit with their thoughts feelings and emotions sometimes going for the hike going for the run 
even though they're classically not really considered mindfulness, it often can bring people into a mindful state. Yeah. You can talk to people who are, you know, marathon runners or do any of these long distance things and they can kind of find themselves in a bit of a flow. Um, so they can be good examples. Other examples of external things is uh, even just focusing on objects. You know, in front of me I have this table and I can notice that there's different patterns different colours on the table, so things like this, and also experiences that are novel is another useful one. So when we experience something new, often our attention is really zoned in on that thing and we don't have so much of the mind wandering. So trying to integrate novelty can be a really good thing for people as well. And we can do this in big and small ways. A a big way would be going overseas, right, where everything's new and the language is new and I don't know where I'm going and public transport and that sort of thing. And we can do it on very small level, which would be as simple as, I'm going for a walk today. I'm not going to go on the usual route that I go to. I'm going to let my gut lead me or I'm going to go to a different cafe today or I'm going to take, you know, these sort of smaller things. So I would say for anyone that struggles with the internal forms of mindfulness, these external ones can be more beneficial for people. I forgot the term, but I think it's interoceptive. Or inter, uh, interoceptive? In, no, not in, not interoceptive. It's intero. Introspective? Gonna, no, no, no. I'm going to butcher it again. Interoception and extra reception. I think it was on the Huberman lab and they were talking about exactly what you're describing okay. where they're like internal sensations versus external. Mm. I know working with uh, some people that I used to work with in the past that experienced trauma, young people, one of the uh, people who actually reached out to me, he still uses a coin. So we use it as a grounding exercise. Oh, yeah. So when he'd be at parties and he'd feel overwhelmed and experience anxiety, he'd have his coin in his pocket and he could just rub the texture yes. of the coin and he always had one with him. It was just a simple strategy. That is a great strategy and what I love about that as well, it's such a simple thing. It's such a simple, small thing and people wouldn't nec- – it's, it's very discreet. People yeah. wouldn't know that you were using that as a strategy. So, yeah, these sorts of things are really good. Another one I saw recently that I really loved, I think it's, it was a bracelet that someone had. I think it was called Buddha beads. Yeah. But it had four different bands of four different textures. So one of them was beaded, one of them was plaited. I can't remember what the other two were, but all these different textures that they have as a bracelet and they can just sort of touch a different texture or play with them when they're feeling heightened to bring them back down. It's, yeah, it's such a, I wish this information was available many years ago. I spent a big part of my life being heightened and I'm Mm. in no way cured. It's a, it's Mm. a thing that it's constantly looking at the nervous system and being able to turn the volume up when you want, because there's plenty of times I don't want to be able to step in and be able to take action and move, but can't operate like that all the time. Mm. There has to be a way to turn it down. And as I had to learn that at a young age, I'm like, I need to learn this. What is the polar opposite to me? And I thought a monk. So I'm like, I'm going to go hang out with the monks and maybe learn (laughs) something. And it sort of led me on that journey. But uh, it was one of the best things I ever did to make me a more balanced individual. If I could say that, some people might disagree, but (laughs) it's been very helpful for me in my experience. What got you into it? Because obviously you've studied psychology. You've been a lifelong learner, passionate about it. I know you had a situation you were happy to share with in 2017, but even prior to that, where did this interest come from? So overall, I think I've always been really interested in people and why they do what they do. Um, So that's always been a really strong interest of mine. But there's also a really rewarding moment that happens when you learn something new and you can apply it and psychology is all for that there's so many times where I've read something in a book and a light bulb goes off and you think 
oh my God, I understand that now. I understand why I do that thing or why that person said or did that or it just, there's something very rewarding about that. Mm. Um, and it helps us cultivate relationships, which is the number one thing that is important for people's happiness is our actually our relationships. Yeah, so, that Harvard study over 85 years, yeah, where they figured yes. it out. Yes, yeah, amazing. So, yeah, I think there was always that interesting curiosity. I think it was just naturally, I was naturally compelled to it. And then over time, so when I was working in high schools, I found that job really rewarding, but I did notice over time, again, my body was sending me signals and over the course of maybe 10 years, you know, those last maybe seven, eight, nine years, I just noticed a change in me. Uh, again, yeah, probably similar to what you're talking about, feeling very like heightened and escalated and just feeling frustrated and grumpy. And I don't mean sometimes, I mean more often than not. Often that's a good guide when you're, when you're feeling, you know, frustrated more often than not, there's something going on. But I, I didn't really have an awareness of what was happening for me at that time. I just felt like, oh, maybe I'm just a grumpy person now or <laughs> that's just who I am. Yeah. <laughs> this is me now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was just like, oh, maybe this is just life. And I don't really even know where the insight came from, but, oh, actually, no, I do. So there was kind of this escalation over a period of time and becoming less and less satisfied with my situation, which was the job. And there were a few other factors as well, but. I think in hindsight, I wasn't really learning and growing in the direction that I wanted to be. Mm. And again, it always comes back to values. So I was really interested in psychology and I think I wanted to explore that more. And in the job that I was in, I wasn't doing that. And one of the challenges in teaching is that there's a lot of admin or you're doing a lot of menial tasks that sometimes take up a lot of your time when you might want to be doing more of the teaching, the purposeful, meaningful stuff. Were you restricted in what you could teach as well because it was, you know, geared towards a subject at exams, I'd imagine? So I focused on psychology and then I was teaching some other subjects as well because they normally need you to cover some other things as well. So I was also teaching like year seven science, learning it as I go. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. That yeah. was good. I was like, oh, yeah, learning about atoms today. So can you guys tell me about an atom? Because like – There you go. So all the kids listening, <laughs> teachers are in fact winging it. So just so you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are I guess some restrictions or parameters and other things that I wanted to explore and um, one time a colleague actually pulled me aside and she was just like, hey, I just wanted to check in and see that you're like, all right, like, you know, you usually have this spark about you and I've just noticed recently that that's changed and I just wanted to check in. And I was in complete denial at the time. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, I'm fine. And over the course of like the next hour, she was asking me certain questions and I kind of at the end of that hour was like, oh, yeah, actually, I think something is up with me. <laughs> so were you putting up a front and you were in denial to the people around you or to yourself? Like you hadn't even no, acknowledged it. I, As I said, I just thought I was a grumpy person. Yeah. Now. Like I, I, it was a slow, steady progression over time. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I didn't really know what was happening for me and then it was only with that prompting conversation that I thought, yeah, actually something has changed or something's maybe not right or – 
I need a change. And she sort of, she encouraged me to go travel, which at the time I was like, oh no, I can't do that. And then by the end of that hour conversation, I was like, that's it. I'm not going into work next year. I called my mum and dad. I'm like, I'm, I think I'm just going to go travel next year and not work. And they were really supportive. They were amazing. But they were like, oh, you know, it's it's a big decision, but we support you and, you know, it's it's an exciting time for you. So yeah. that, that's amazing when you've got that support as well. But, uh, yeah, so then I, you know, took that time away and I guess I had time to reflect and return. And then when I returned to teaching and got back into the routine, I was like, no, I think I need a permanent change. And mm. that meant going back to university <laughs> at the age of 30, which was really challenging for me. I, I love learning, but I don't necessarily love academia. I find writing essays quite challenging. Um, I can do it, but it's, it's very hard for me. So, yeah, th- that sparked a series of changes that, you know, upon reflection now I realised that over time the job just wasn't serving me anymore. You know, we change over time. Yeah. But the, the change was so slow and steady that I, I didn't realise when I was in it. And that can be a really common experience for people as well. When you're in the thick of something big, you, you sometimes you just don't know. Yeah. You, you're not really aware. You can't see the forest for the trees when you're in it. Yeah, yeah, and then when you come out of it, so when I, I came out of it and I was experiencing new things and exploring things that I wanted to explore, I could look back at the difference from where I was then, you know, then to now and be like, oh, yeah, okay. So that was probably my, you know, challenge with mental health. But, I, you know, if you think about a mental health continuum, it's kind of got like the green zone, which is, you know, the healthier end, you've got green, yellow, orange, and red. I was probably like bordering into the orange. Mm. <laughs> like, so noticing some of those changes in, in myself, which the changes were that I was just coming in, doing what I had to do. I wasn't really connected, fully connected to what I was doing. I think of. a lot of people can relate to that experience. I've mm. definitely been there myself and you're just mm. going through the motions and yes. the spark is gone. Yes. Yeah. That, perfectly sums up what the experience was like for me at that time. Yeah. And I think the the jump was a little bit scary for me because, you know, you're obviously in your comfort zone, but your, your comfort zone can slowly kill you over time. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the, what is it, the um, frog in the, you know. The, the boiling water yeah, analogy. Yeah. yeah, the comfort zone can be a little bit like that. So yeah. They also say it's where dreams go to die as well, the comfort zone. So a lot of people get yes. stuck there. Yes. Yeah, so I think there was, yeah, a bit of that going on. But, Yeah. yeah. That's exciting. So what made you get into frontline workers? So that was part of that shift. So I was like, okay, I have think I've explored what I can and have gotten what I need to get in terms of learning from teaching for about 10 years. And it was an amazing experience. It was time for something new. So then I, I went back and did my study. Uh, I did some volunteer work for Lifeline And then, yeah, the opportunity came up to do mental health training with frontline workers and it felt like the perfect job for me at the time because there's not many jobs that have a heavy on the teaching aspect or experience but also are growing in another direction and I felt like it was an opportunity to explore psychology in a completely different context to what I was doing before. So that opportunity came up and... And this is a relatively new role. Like they're they're creating it as you go. Yeah, That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely um, emerging and and kind of emerging in a a lot of fields now in more recent years. 
whether it's frontline. Um, I know I spoke to someone recently who does similar work for the ATO. Yeah. Um, so do you know what I mean? They're, they're big organisations are kind of bringing them on board now. But, yeah, it's it's interesting to watch it evolve. It's mm. amazing. We are running out of time and there was another thing I wanted to discuss and we're talking about the window of tolerance, I oh, believe, yes. or if I butchered it. Can you elaborate <laughs> on that? Yeah, so the window of tolerance, so I really recommend people look up the framework because it it, um, it has a really nice visual that goes with it, but I will uh, try my best to explain it as well as I can. But the, the window of tolerance essentially just demonstrates what's happening in the nervous system at any one time. Mm-hmm. So at one end, we can have an escalation or elevation in the nervous system. So when the nervous system, nervous system is going quicker at a quicker pace, so you'll have things like an escalated heart rate, you know, tension, anxiety, panic, um, tunnel vision, you know, these sort of heightened experiences, sometimes anger, you know, those really intense hot kind of emotions. Mm. So that's an elevation in the nervous system, what we call hyperarousal. So the prefix hyper means above, hyper-escalated, elevated. So that's one direction that our nervous system can go in. And often our fight-flight is up in this band as well. So um, these often have an increased adrenaline, essentially. And then we can have an opposite thing happen in the nervous system, which will be your lower level responses or a slowing in the nervous system. So this can be things like, you know, your freeze response. But yeah, things like being passive, unmotivated, feelings of hopelessness, can't get out of bed, Mm. withdraw, these sorts of things. And this is called hypoarousal. And the prefix hypo means below lowered slowing yeah we can also have a fawn response down here which i'll explain those yeah in i'd a love moment. to hear more about yeah. that so that's our lowered level responses so when we experience stress we can go in either of these two directions mm. above or below and then in the middle band you have what's called the window of tolerance and this is when you're at your optimal state yeah like so, a flow state yeah yeah optimal state flow state so experiences can be feeling calm confident you know, we can problem solve, we can tap into critical and creative thinking. Uh, basically think about when you're at your best. That's kind of like the middle band when it's smooth sailing. We can often be more, yeah, flexible when we're in this state. We were talking about before having high or low resources, but when you're in the middle band and you're at your optimal, you can deal with challenges very easily. You feel like you're thriving yeah. at that sort of state. So the idea is to have strategies that when you're heightened, you can have things that will calm you down and bring you to the window. And when you're lowered, you will have things that energize you and bring you to the window Yeah. in this sort of way. Um, and then we have, you know, our fear responses, which is fight, flight, fawn and freeze. Mm. So these responses, they, they go in that order, that default order. So if you experience a f- threat, your instinctive first default is to try and fight the threat. Mm-hmm. You will only bounce here if your brain and body make the very quick decision that you have the skills, capacity and resources to fight the threat. We know that that's not always the case. So if that's not the case, you will default to the second line of defence, which is flight, to run away from the threat. Again, we need the skills, capacity and resources to actually be able to run away and we don't always have that. So then the third line of defence is a fawn defence. So a fawn is to befriend the enemy. So we will try and befriend the enemy to de-escalate the threat, um, which can be a useful strategy, but not always. And so then finally, um, the last line of defence is a freeze response. And so a freeze response is 
uh, last line of defense, essentially a play dead response. Play dead so that you're undetected by the enemy. As an example, if I hear a bump at night, I will go into a freeze response. Yeah? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Blanket <laughs> over the head, they can't see me. <laughs> yeah, it's such a, it sounds like such a weird thing, yeah. right? But yeah, it's it's um, that's what it's essentially there for. Um, and also the when you freeze, it will you'll dissociate from your body and your mind, which can lower physical and emotional pain. Mm. So, and if you think about things like domestic violence, uh, often people don't have the capacity to do the first two, fight or flee. So they will default into fawn and freeze. So it sort of is dictated by your situation, circumstances and your capacities. Yeah. Yeah, it's very uh, very thorough explanation. I wasn't familiar with fawn. Uh, yes, that's a new one to it's, me. It's so a new one to very, the table. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. It is fascinating. It's funny. Um, would love to have you back another time to explore strategies to maybe implement mm. for whether you're in a hyperarousal state or a hypoarousal state yes. and things that you can implement, obviously, of course, based on your book. Mm. Tell us about your book. Yes. What yeah, I'm very excited to hear about it. It's coming yes. out soon. It's, uh, it's going to be printed. Tell us about it. Yes. So the book is basically a book of mindfulness and self-care strategies. At the moment, the target audience is the busy professional woman. Uh, Having said that, the strategies are useful for anyone and I am eventually going to roll out for other audiences, like, you know, male audience or um, maybe teenagers, this sort of thing, but this is the starting point. Mm. Essentially, the book is, yeah, self-care strategies that can be used, mindfulness strategies that can be used. It is almost like a mesh between a textbook and an activity book. Yeah, love that. So often what you'll see online is just, you know, maybe colouring books or, you know, kind of things like that. Or you'll see, you know, the very theoretically dense (laughs) kind of books. So this is kind of set up to be a bit more of an easy read. It's got lots of colours and illustrations and things like that. But the first part sort of explains the theory behind mindfulness and then the rest of the book is essentially themes or categories of mindfulness, particularly pitched to people that don't like meditation. Yeah. So I can think of so many people. Yeah, yeah. So there are about about eight themes that I've developed. Each theme has approximately eight activities. So as an example, um, one of the themes is novelty. So then there'll be eight activities around novelty. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, You know, gratitude would be another theme. Um, What's really interesting about this book that I find amazing is the fact that there is actionable steps that people can implement in the moment. There is activities mm. that they can actually walk away with. And something you mentioned earlier about your intent when you were learning things in psychology, but you also had the intent to implement, to actually apply the things mm. that you learn. And most people in, that I come across in many industries, not just personal development, they learn with the intent of just absorbing information and collecting it like a freaking bowerbird just to mm-hmm. randomly throw statistics out into the mm-hmm. world every now and then they can use it trivia but they don't actually apply the information and i think that's where a lot of people get get stuck learning the benefits of mindfulness and go and meditate but you're actually giving them things that they can actually use yes this book is kind of the application's done for you well, yeah. i've done it so you don't have to and yeah again the themes are quite useful so again if you don't like meditation i mean there is an introspective kind of little chapter or whatever you call it so there's like eight kind of mini chapters or whatever um if you don't like that you can skip that and you can go to the observation chapter or the gratitude chapter um or the activity chapter um so they can read it in any order whatever they think is relevant to them yeah it's designed to basically i mean the first 
part is an intro, but from there you could literally just open the book at anything that interests you and complete, you know, each activity is maybe one to four pages yep. and it gives a little bit of a background as to what the activity is. There's things for you to fill in and write um, or potentially draw sometimes um, or, or like, you know, a little task to do that day. So it's kind of designed to just pick it up and do one for the day. Yep. And how much time would someone need to throw at any of these activities is it dependent on the activity itself? Could people get it done in five minutes or so? Like is there options for that? Yeah, so they're all different lengths. Some of them it's just a paragraph and a, a goal for maybe that day. So yeah. encouraging someone to, um, you know, think about something or, or action something. Um, others, you know, it probably – maximum would be 10 minutes I would say but yeah it can be anywhere from one minute to 10 minutes probably yeah. people but, can find one minute to 10 minutes and they can just scale back on the Netflix for a little bit or something yes. like that so yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I think everyone can find a time to implement these strategies mm. what is the book called the book is called the mindful explorer and yeah I'm hoping to have it out pretty soon so the there's some a little bit of information on my website which is what is my website um it's mindfullivinglaura.com.au so yeah I uh, like in, in preparation for coming on today I said to my brother can you whip together a website yeah. so that I have something yeah. <laughs> for today so he very generously uh, put his time together to put you know, something together for me. So I have done exactly the same thing. That's <laughs> yeah. how I ended up with my website. I had yeah. a presentation that I had to do and I'm like, all these people yeah. are going to look me up. Can you put something together? Yeah. And see yeah. Happening. Your website's really good. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Two young guys that I mentor put it together for me and they did a really oh, good job. They yeah. have a digital marketing agency. I will get the details for it and I'll have to give them a plug on this yeah. podcast. But yeah, yeah, thank you. You've checked it out. So a good thing that I had the website then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> good time it there. Came in handy. Yeah, so how can people find you? Obviously the website, do you want to be contacted LinkedIn? Is there social media presence or anything like that or just exclusively through the website? I think through the website at this point in time, I do also have have a couple of social media pages but they currently have nothing on them yeah. but you can also contact it's, it's basically just mindful living laura yeah. one word so um i think there's like a tiktok account there's an instagram account i think there's like facebook as well um and there's like a gmail like email account um, which is mindful living laura at gmail.com uh, but yeah again the website kind of ties it all together so that's probably the best place to go perfect so when you have released the book we'll have you back again if you're open to it i hope you've yeah, had fun and that. we'll go over some strategies maybe some of that you can give us a few exercises and things that you've used from your book maybe yes. the feedback that you've got from the public and any other insights you've developed along the way yeah. really enjoyed the session this was episode i believe 36 and i <laughs> think i'm going to try and push to get to episode 40 by the end of the year most podcasts apparently get cancelled after 20 episodes. People quit after three episodes. And after really? 20, apparently 90% of people don't do them. So really? I've been a bit slack lately, uh, but people enjoy them. And yes. a few people have been reaching out. So here we are. Thank you for getting me back in the swing of it. And we'll definitely have you back again. So everyone stay tuned for next week. We will be back for Rowan Prant Method. Have a good day. Hi, everybody. This is Witch from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to... 50 kilometres an hour and reminisces about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karen and get down with the good vibes. If you're the Karen way, just call Mitchell Tall. Or in Patterson Lace, just call Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. 
Buy us a house. Just call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh, yeah. A little real estate. We want more. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. One take.